0: The following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Luke eleven fourteen to sixteen reads. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself... How will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast, demons by, uh, cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is the, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger, then he attacks him. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And then enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, Having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays give you light. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that this is a difficult text and one that's very confusing to us. But would you, through the work and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to be able to understand the truths that Jesus, your Son, was communicating through them. For we pray these in, in his name. Amen. During our last three messages, I preached this mini-series on the topic of prayer. And uh, commenting on this idea of what it means to pray, Philip Yancey writes, several, and just to let you know, Philip Yancey has never had children. And he writes, Several times friends have sent their unaccompanied children to visit us in Colorado. Having no experience as a parent, I am amazed at the one-way relationship between a child and adult. Kids automatically assume you'll wake them up, clean the room behind them, feed them, transport them to fun places, and pay for everything along the way. They may offer an occasional thank you, but they give little feedback and rarely initiate conversation. Adults, they assume, exist to satisfy their every need. Kids are, in a word, immature. And I sometimes remind myself of that word when I besiege God with a series of demands, wanting God to solve my problems and satisfy my desires. As Yancey points out, often our approach to God can be like that of immature little children. We make our demands to Him, fully expecting that He's going to give us everything that we want without even considering what the implications, the consequences of what we're asking for may be. It's like prayer becomes that golden ticket to our dreams. You just give Him your laundry list, and He's going to do it for you. But as we've been looking at through that theme, through the series of prayer, this I hope one of the emerging themes that you saw coming out of that series was that prayer is essence to enter into a conversation with God, hearing what He has to say as much as making our requests known to Him. And in the process of this conversation, I think we can fully expect God to answer some of the things that we ask for. There ought to be a sense of expectation that God is going to hear our request and do things on our behalf. As the Archbishop William Temple said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. Now, he's speaking a bit tongue-in-cheek here, but Temple is pointing out that when we pray, what we're in essence doing is simply inviting God into our lives, saying, Lord, work in us. And as we do that, we should fully expect that there are going to be things that are going to happen in our life that we're going to see. And as, you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek, he says, what it looks like is a bunch of coincidences. You know, think funny things happen, strange things happen. But through the eyes of faith, we know that it is God orchestrating in his timing a lot of amazing things in our life in answer to our prayer. But maturing in prayer also means that we open ourselves to the possibility that God may not do Exactly as we request. In his infinite wisdom, he knows better than even what we know for the things we need in our life. And so even when we don't get what we ask for, we continue to trust in him. Believing that everything that he does, even when his answer is no, is always for our good. And there is a higher purpose for what he allows. Well, now we turn back to Luke 11 from our departure to Luke 18 last week. And you probably, even in the scripture reading, are going, "I have no idea what direction he's going to go with this message." And these are the kind of passages that, in truth, as a pastor, I kind of wish I could skip, you know, because even as I was reading it, I was there was a point for me going, "Like, I have no insights here," you know, "Like, I, I don't, I really don't want to preach this." But the more I kept reading it, I began to see these themes emerging that uh, really convicted my own heart. Uh, that I believe is at the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. The story begins with Jesus performing another one of his many miracles, casting out a demon. In particular, he casts out this demon that had caused the man to be mute, or in other words, he was totally unable to talk. We have no idea how long this was, whether it happened from birth For 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, we don't know. But it was clearly long enough that when the people witnessed this, it blew them away to hear this guy talking. Commenting on this particular form of demon possession, David Gooding writes, the ability to speak and express oneself articulately, to communicate with others is a characteristically human faculty. Part of the distinctive glory of being man. Dumbness robs a human being of part of what it means to be human. It makes a prisoner of a human personality within his own mind and body. In previous passages, when we looked at demon possession, one of the things I pointed out is that because of the demon's hatred of God, one of their primary objectives when they possess someone is to destroy the image of God in that person. Whatever dignity, whatever glory that is in a person because of the image of God in them, The goal of the demon is to destroy that in them. And so one of the ways that this demon attempted to do that is to prevent this first person from being able to speak. Uh, What's interesting, though, is how little attention Luke gives to the miracle itself. In fact, it's only one verse that he gives to the miracle. His real interest seems to be not in the miracle itself, but in the way that the people reacted to it. And so, what is interesting to me is despite the fact that Jesus had many enemies, many people who wanted to bring him down, they never, as far as we could see recorded in the Gospels, they never actually tried to discredit the reality of his miracles themselves. And I think that in and of itself is pretty telling. The actual miracles, in other words, seem to be so powerful. So undeniable that even Jesus' enemies recognize that the way we're going to undermine his ministry is not to attack the miracles themselves. Because at face value, it's very obvious that this guy possesses a power that we have never seen before in what he is able to do in the name of God. And so they go through all different other channels to try to undermine him and to discredit him. And so this first group concocts a crazy story. And they say, all right, you know, we can't deny it. We know this guy couldn't talk for like decades. And now suddenly the guy is talking after Jesus touches him. But what they say is, but you know what we think? We think that he does this not in the name of God, but in the name of Beelzebul or Beelzebub. Now, what are they saying here? Well, that name Beelzebub originally referred to a pagan god named Ekron. And what happened is that over time, the Jews began to attribute that name not to that pagan God, but to Satan himself. Now, literally that word Beelzebul or Beelzebub translated means Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Flies. That's what that title actually means. And so when they called Satan Beelzebub, what they were really doing was it was like a slander against Satan. It was a derogatory term they, they used to mock Satan. And so in essence, what they are saying to, about Jesus to these crowds is, Jesus is like a double agent. He looks like he's on God's side. But in truth, he's an agent of Satan. And so he's casting out these demons in the name of Satan. So Jesus takes a look at their argument. And he says, in essence... That's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Okay, he says, uh, "Do you even understand? Are you even listening to yourselves? Do you know how ridiculous you sound?" Because he was, in essence, saying, "What does Satan gain by attacking himself? That's suicidal. It's 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 ridiculous." Now, you could maybe make an argument that Satan might tactically sacrifice some of his demons to ultimately gain credibility for Jesus so that eventually, like a double agent, he could use Jesus as a servant to win the people over and to attack God. But that argument totally breaks down when you consider the wholesale destruction and chaos that Jesus caused among the demonic powers through his healing ministry. I showed this slide sometime last year when I talked about demon possession And basically, this is a graph that shows demonic activity in the entire scope of the Bible. And when you look in the Old Testament, it's almost complete silence. There is almost no mention of demons in the Old Testament. And then suddenly you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and demonic activity just explodes everywhere. And I think that gives us a picture of of, uh, just, you know, it's like Jesus turned the lights on. And all the cockroaches are now scrambling, looking for anywhere to hide. So that's why in verses 20 to 22, Jesus rebukes them and says, But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. The picture that Jesus is giving is is a picture of utter devastation against Satan and his forces. In essence, what Jesus is saying, all of this demonic activity that you see me casting out is a sign to you that the kingdom of God has come. In essence, Jesus is saying, I am giving you a behind-the-scenes look at what's happening in the spiritual realms. That has actually been happening throughout history, but you've just never seen because it's invisible to you. But now I am letting the invisible be visible so that it is a sign to you that the kingdom of God has come and that I have victory over these demonic forces. That wage war against you. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Colossians chapter two verse fifteen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In essence what the Apostle Paul was saying was, it wasn't even a fair fight. Jesus showed up on the scene and a huge battle took place in the spiritual realms. And Satan was utterly humiliated and dominated by Jesus. And so for you to make the argument that somehow I am casting out demons in the name of Satan is ridiculous. I am utterly destroying Satan. I am humiliating him. Now, I want to say something about this. The response of this first group to Jesus uh, attacking him in the way they did... I think, reveals a lot about the way all of us generally tend to operate. And what I'm saying is is this. I think most of us believe that we sort of go through life as fair and objective observers of truth. You know, carefully weighing the merits of an argument and then making a rational and logical decision based on the truth that we understand. I mean... Isn't that in truth how you think you actually operate in life? You know, I think I'm a pretty rational person. I think generally I'm a truth seeker and that I try to really make the best choices for my life based on the information that I'm given. Well, to some degree, this may be true, but when you really read through the pages of the Bible, I don't think that's the way the Bible lays it out. I think a lot of us have a hard time owning up to the fact that Most of the time, we actually lead our lives from the heart and our heads follow afterward. We just don't have the honesty to acknowledge it, you know? We're not nearly as rational as we would like to think we are. And in truth, there are a lot of other influences that cause us to make the choices we do in life. And after we've already made our decisions, then what usually happens is our mind comes into play and we basically justify our choices using whatever argument we need to make to do so. Um, the more we study scientifically how the mind works, I think even science is proving this. And so it's interesting that you see these scientific, kind of scientific terms entering into our modern vocabulary. I don't know if you've ever heard terms like this, but, you know, like the amygdala hijack. Or the lizard brain. Ever, anyone ever any hurt. I can't even talk. Ever hear anyone talk about that? The lizard brain. It's like this pr- pr- primitive, sort of primordial part of my brain that causes me to act in certain irrational ways that even I cannot fully explain my actions to why I do what I do. There was a psych experiment that was kind of interesting done not that long ago. And they basically took a bunch of subjects and they showed them a picture of a guy, just a random guy, and they named him Joe. Now, what they said was, uh, just, you don't know this guy, but his name is Joe, and what I want you to do is just tell me what you think about Joe. What is your first impression, just based on the photograph alone? Can you just try to describe this guy for me? But before they actually asked the question, they did something a little sneaky. They had the experimenter holding a bunch of papers and making it look like he was kind of struggling to juggle these things, and he had a cup of coffee in his hand. And to half the subjects, they would say, "Uh, could you help me out and just for a second hold this cup of coffee for me? For half the subjects, the coffee was warm. For the other half of subjects, the coffee cup was cold. And what they discovered was this. The people holding the warm cups of coffee gave a favorable report about Joe, and the people holding the cold cup of coffee gave a negative impression of Joe. Warm drink, warm heart. Cold drink, cold heart. Totally illogical, but it happens. Now, I think there is a side in every one of you that finds it hard to believe these results, right? And you obviously would not have followed this pattern, would you? You're thinking, there is no way. There is no way that the temperature of a cup of coffee in my hand is going to influence me or bias me about a first impression, about a picture of a person that I see. But it does. It happens like this. Let me actually do a little experiment on you and give you a perception test. Probably some of you have already seen this, but try it out here. Very simple question. Which half of this object is lighter and which half is darker? Just say it. (laughs) Now you guys are all afraid because you realize you're psych experiment subjects. Come on, just tell me the obvious answer, please. Top one, right? Just visually looking at it, you say, yeah, this is a no-brainer. The top half is clearly darker. What if I told you those are the exact same shades of gray? Would you believe me? You're saying, there's no way. I mean, the difference is too great. There is no way. Well, I'm just going to put a black bar over the middle of the image, and I'm going to prove it to you. Do you see it now? They're the exact same shade of gray. You want to see it again? Some of you think I played a trick on you. You changed the colors when you put that black bar. Look at it again, all right? This almost looks white. This almost looks black. But your brain is fooling you. They're the exact same shade of gray. You see, sometimes you can be so confident in your belief about something without realizing that your brain is actually deceiving you. And in our story today, these people have come to their conclusion already about what they believe about Jesus. And out of that conclusion, they are not willing to see anything anymore. They have become utterly blinded by their biases. So they have decided Jesus is not who he says he is. He is not the Son of God. And so even as they witness these miracles that he's doing, they simply refuse to believe the truth that is right in front of their eyes. Instead, they would rather concoct these ridiculous arguments that make no rational sense than to acknowledge that they were wrong about Jesus. And this is the level to which you and I are capable of deceiving ourselves. Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are primarily not thinking beings. We are first and foremost desiring beings who try to justify the longings of our hearts by using our arguments. This is the trap that all of us are in. And the truth is this, all of us are believing certain lies that have somehow made it into our heads. And these lies are blinding us from the truth and preventing us from being able to see what is right in front of our eyes. Well, in addition to this first group, that was aggressively attacking Jesus, there was another group on the scene that day of a people that refused to follow him for another reason. These were the fence-sitters who felt that Jesus had not shown them enough evidence to convince them to follow him. These are probably the ones who thought that they were more enlightened, who thought they were wiser for withholding judgment until they had enough evidence to decide. Jesus confronts them, however, telling them that in this fight, there is no place for fence-sitting. There can be no neutrality. You have to declare your allegiance one way or another. There are no other options. and That's why in verse 23, Jesus says, Listen, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Daryl Bach writes, It is popular in our day to be neutral. In a culture where tolerance is highly valued, nonpartisanship is attractive. In religious discussions, we try to avoid stepping on toes. For in Western cultures, religious views are generally considered private. We want to avoid offending others in a culture that is diverse. But neutrality is not always a good thing. And neither is polite disengagement. Some issues are important enough to require are considered choices listen there are some debates that frankly you don't really need to pick a dog in that fight you know coke versus pepsi oh, the stupidest fights you know, whatever they have at the restaurant i drink you know I mean, anyone that's giving me a connoisseur of soft drinks i think it's, it's kind of silly frankly in my opinion coffee versus tea dog owners versus cat owners mac versus pc that one i'm a little on the fence about <laughs> maybe there is a legitimacy to that one um But Jesus says this, listen, in this debate about what you think about me and who you think I am, you don't have that luxury of sitting on the fence and being a casual observer to the fight that's going on and thinking you're somehow high-minded and better than everyone else and more enlightened because you take a neutral stance. Jesus says, you know, and you know, in truth, some of us do feel that pressure, don't we? Like maybe some of you are thinking in your heart, I don't want to be pressured into that choice about religion because I find it very uncomfortable because my mind is really confused. I I, I see valid arguments all the way around and sometimes I don't know what to think and I'm sympathetic to that. All of us have a journey we need to go on when we're struggling with this issue of faith. That It's a very real thing. But in truth, out of that struggle, I think sometimes we're just more comfortable just being a polite but uncommitted observer to everything. And basically choosing not to take a side in the debate. But Jesus says simply, this is not an option. It's not. Because this is about your eternal destiny. This is about where you are headed after this life. And so what you think of me is something that you've got to make a decision on. If you are not for me, you are against me. That's why what follows next has to be understood in light of this. Probably one of the most confusing verses in the Bible. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, he, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes and finds the house swept and put in order, then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and then enters and dwells there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. Now... Some people think that Jesus is talking literally here about what's actually happening with demon possession. But I actually think that Jesus is probably speaking more figuratively, more metaphorically, because we have to read it in the context of the broader teaching that he's giving. And in light of that, I think this is what Jesus is really saying. When you are non-committal like this, when you are a fence-sitter, saying, we haven't made our mind up yet about you, Jesus... We're not sure what to think of you. What Jesus seems to be saying to these people is this. You know what you are like? You are like an empty house. All clean and swept, but there's no furniture in there and there's no occupants. You're actually like an empty house. And the truth is this. No house can stay empty permanently. Eventually, something has to occupy that house You've got basically a big welcome sign at your front door. And the truth is this. If God isn't living in your heart, the forces of evil will be more than glad to fill that vacancy and make their home in you. Again, I think Jesus is saying this. Neutrality is simply not an option when it comes to the spiritual realms. In this spiritual war that we're all facing You have to declare an allegiance in this battle. The truth is this either you're spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. You are either spiritually growing or you are spiritually dying. There is no coasting when it comes to your spirit, there is no riding the fence and declaring neutrality. Goes on in verse 29 to 30, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now listen, it's not necessarily wrong to be wanting evidence to strengthen your faith to help support your faith in God. This is not necessarily a wrong request. It is, show me more, God. Show me yourself. But even in asking for more evidence, I think what Jesus is pointing at is there's a lot of self-deception that even comes into play in this situation. As it says earlier, it says, they said this not because they wanted more evidence, but because they were just testing Jesus. And so Jesus calls them out on their bluff, And he says, you say you need a little bit more evidence, but in essence, how many more miracles do you have to witness before you feel like you have enough evidence and you will believe? In other words, he's saying, you are acting like you are truth seekers, but the truth is that you refuse to see the truth that has already been revealed to you. And so you make one excuse after another to reject the evidence that has already been given to you. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, You don't need more signs. You need a changed heart that is willing to see the truth that is right in front of your very eyes. And then Jesus says something interesting. There is only one more sign that this generation is going to get from God. And it's going to be a doozy. It's going to be the final sign. And he says, it's going to be the sign of Jonah. Now, that probably confuses you going, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Sign of Jonah. Well, I think Matthew's gospel helps us to understand what was Jesus saying. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 to 40, he offers some additional commentary. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish... So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying. This is the sign of Jonah. Just as the Old Testament prophet Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, and then on that third day was spit out into dry land, says that was a foreshadowing of the death that I'm going to experience for three days and three nights before I come back from the dead and resurrect. And so what Jesus is, in essence, is saying is this. This is going to be God's final sign to you. In a few months, I'm going to surrender my life on a Roman cross, and the Son of God will die before your very eyes. <clears throat> very eyes. And he says that's going to be the last sign that God is going to give to you. And if you reject that sign of the cross there is nothing left for you but judgment because this is going to be the greatest sign that God could ever give is to crucify his own son on your behalf because of his love for you. And if you reject that sign, there is no more grace for you. Nothing that God could do that could possibly win a hardened heart like yours to himself. And that's why in verse 32 it says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And I just want to wrap up with this. Jesus closes with these final words that are probably some of the most confusing words in this entire passage we're looking at. Then he says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you not light. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, it's important that you receive the truth. It's important that truth be preached to you. That's important to believing. But he's saying, equally important to the truth being preached to you is the condition of your heart that is receiving that truth. That's what he means by these words. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you know, when you have a lamp, no one sticks it under the bed and hides the light. You know, you you put the lamp out there on a stand and what it does basically is it illuminates a room so that you can see the things around you. And what Jesus says is this, your eyes are the lamp to your body. Meaning, this is how you are absorbing truth and reality is through your eyes. And when he says his eyes, what he's really saying is your heart, your mind, okay? So he's saying, all of this input is coming into you through this filter of your eyes. So Jesus is saying this, what is the condition of your eyes? He says, if your eyes are a light, does that light shine bright with truth? Or do those eyes dim with darkness? And so Jesus is saying this, if there is darkness in your eyes, If there is darkness in your heart, even the light of truth that tries to come inside you becomes distorted by that filter into darkness itself. To the paranoid, even a constructive comment is viewed as a slight or attack against you. To the jealous, someone else's gain is your loss. To the self-centered, no amount of attention is ever enough. You wallow in self-pity. To the doubting, even the most convincing evidence is never proof enough. You see, what Jesus is saying is, the light of your eyes is dark. There is a darkness there in your heart that nothing good can come into you. Because as soon as it enters you, it becomes polluted by this garbage, this junk that is in you. It's interesting, in verse 34, when it says that your eye is healthy, That word in the Greek literally means when your eye is single. The real literal word is when your eye is single. In other words, what Jesus seems to be saying is this. When your eye is dark, it's polluted by all kinds of filthy things and ulterior motives. It's a pollution that comes in that spoils even truth so that when the truth is right before you, you're blind to it. You cannot even see it because you're so colored by your biases and so filled with these lies that you're believing. But to have a healthy eyes or to have a healthy heart is to have a pure heart, a simple heart, a single heart that is able to receive the truth that God is revealing in your life. Now, as you think about everything that I've been just preaching to you, I think we're skating a little bit of a dangerous place here. Because I think it's very possible to hear everything that I'm saying, and even in light of those psychology experiments that I talked about, and, and the lizard brain, and all of that, and just sort of feel like it's hopeless. It's hopeless. I mean, I don't even know how to uncover my deeper motives about why I do the things I do. And I acknowledge there are some deep places of darkness there. You know, I try to justify myself, and I can be a good debater and make arguments for why I do, but yeah, I have to acknowledge That at some deeper level, I know that there's some darkness there. And I know that I'm in bondage to certain lies that are really killing me inside. Uh, But what's interesting to me is this. Jesus never takes that fatalistic pathway and says, so therefore the conclusion is, you guys are all dogs and it's hopeless and just get away from me. No, even in these very final words that Jesus says, he seems to be hinting at There is a responsibility that we have. There is a sense of ownership that we have to take for the darkness in our heart. And there is something that we can do. And I think ultimately that answer is this, that there has to be, I would argue this, we don't actually have the ability, the wisdom, or the power to correct the darkness in our own hearts. We don't. We're kidding ourselves if we think that just by wisdom or by willpower we can do that. There is a certain helplessness, but that brokenness, that acknowledgement that this darkness is in me can open the door for me to seek the work of God in my heart. And as, In essence, my concluding words are simply these. Pray that what God would give us this pure and clean heart that is able to acknowledge the truth in a way that can be responsive to what God is trying to do in our lives. Two psalms that I want to end with, and I'll just finish. Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This needs to be our prayer. And the other prayer is like it in Psalm 51. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's pray. I think this is one of the heavier messages um, that we can hear from Jesus. But it's an important one for all of us. And I think what Jesus is getting at here at the heart of it That there's a lot of self-deception that we're all in bondage to. And I think the truth is that we give ourselves far more credit than probably what we are due. And like I said at the beginning of the message, I think there's a sort of false notion that we all think we're pretty rational and objective observers of truth and that we sort of go through life weighing things and weighing reality and going, oh, yeah, I think this is the way to go. But when you read through the pages of the Bible, it's, kind of painting for us a rather different picture, saying, you know, you have no idea how dark the human heart is in the very deep recesses and corners, um, some of the things you're capable of. And in truth, a lot of things that are pre-conscious, irrational in you are actually driving the things you do and harming your relationships, hurting your marriage, affecting your parenting, affecting your work life and your career and your view of money and your view of people and your view of success and your view of life. And what Jesus says is, I can help you with that. I can help you with that. Um, The light of my truth can come and give you a clean heart, a pure heart, but the thing is, is you cannot receive that ministry until you have the brokenness enough to acknowledge. I cannot do this on my own. I'm tired of trying to be my own lawyer and defending my life. Um, what I really need is simply a new heart, a clean heart. Maybe for some of you, this is where you are in your faith journey: is you're still struggling to figure out what you really believe about Jesus. And I am sympathetic to that journey that you're on, and we're so glad that you're with us here in this service as you're struggling to grapple with this idea of what is truth? Who is Jesus? But there's a very real danger that somehow you could get stalled out in that search and you can end up just becoming a fence-sitter, just a polite, uncommitted, neutral person. But What Jesus would say is, you know, in truth, such a person doesn't exist. You are either for God or you are against him. There's no neutrality here. You have to declare your allegiance at some point, who you will follow in your life. And maybe this is the day that God is giving you the invitation to take that final step to say, I will trust you, Jesus. I will follow you. But I also want to say that there are many of you who say that you're Christians, and yet in truth you are under some bondage to some lies in your life. And you need to be freed of some of those things. You cannot do it by willpower. You know, there are layers of complexity here that are in operation in your brain that you cannot even acknowledge or realize is going on that is causing you to do the things you're doing in your life. You need to come to God. You need to, to surrender that heart. Say, I want the light that shines in my eyes, to be bright. And God, only you can do that. So would you cleanse me? Give me a new heart. And so we're going to go into communion here in just a little bit. But before that, we do that, we're going to sing a song. And would you just pray to God for a few moments before the worship team leads us into that song?